Kia ora. I'm Bernard Hickey and welcome to my daily podcast via my substack called The Kaka. It's designed for paying subscribers who support my work covering housing unaffordability, climate change in action and poverty reduction in Aotearoa. Today I wanted to look at a couple of examples of how Aotearoa is dealing or not dealing with some of the uh, climate change and housing crises we have. Yesterday, the government announced it would share the cost with councils of buying back properties deemed uninhabitable after being flooded out during the Cyclone Hail and Cyclone Gabrielle extreme weather events in at the end of January and the beginning of February this year. There's about a billion dollars worth of houses which have been red-stickered. They're titled Category 3 under the um, assessments done by a task force. That means that the government and the council uh, will buy out um, these properties, about 700 of them over the country, including about 400 in Auckland. However, the sharing, the exact percentages of who's going to pay, be it central government taxpayers or local government ratepayers, has not been agreed yet. It's also not clear exactly how insurers will uh, contribute or not to this shared arrangement. And um, for me, this is symptomatic of the issues that we face and how we're currently dealing with them. Just to step back a minute, we obviously have a climate change crisis uh, described and in fact um, um, endorsed in Parliament as an emergency And uh, that's because our climate is 1.1 degrees warmer than it was pre-industrial times and is expected uh, by the world, uh, by the United Nations bodies to be at 1.5 degrees, at least briefly, in the next four or five years. In fact, that could happen quite quickly. We're expecting a so-called super El Nino event later this year, in part because there's been significant warming of the seas in the Arctic, in the Central Pacific, and around the Antarctic, with um, record high ice melts in uh, the Arctic and the Antarctic. Uh, And um, uh, what appears to be some acceleration of uh, um, climate warming. Now, um, we know that there's a couple of tasks at hand. Firstly, to try to reduce our emissions so that the eventual warming of the planet is not um, an extinction event. And secondly, to um, mitigate and prepare and then also um, deal with the extreme weather events. We know we're going to have more of them and they're going to be more extreme. And uh, we're seeing that all around the world pretty much every day. Uh, you know, the worst fires of all time in um, eastern Canada right now, record high temperatures in 111 cities in China, uh, uh, droughts in um, parts of Europe, uh, one of the warmest winters ever in Europe, uh, obviously the wettest summer we've ever experienced 
and we're about to go into a record El Nino event. So we know these extreme events happen, and we know um, that the two extreme events we saw at the end of January and beginning of February were collectively the second worst uh, and biggest insurance disaster in our history, just behind the Christchurch earthquakes, so the worst climate disaster in our history. And the question is now being confronted, because uh, the costs are coming in, uh, who's going to pay for it? So, uh, if you're being a pure libertarian, um, uh, let the chips fall where they may, um, let those who uh, ignored um, the prospects of climate change and didn't think or plan ahead for the likely more extreme events, let them take the costs. So all of those people who were flooded out and who were living in homes that had been there for quite some time and probably hadn't considered that this was possible, although there have been extreme events in these places like this before, um, just before the Second World War, for example, in the uh, Esk Valley. And um, if you're being uh, pretty tough on it, you'd say these people should pay for it themselves. They should claim their insurance amounts and um, either rebuild or um, move away at their cost, not to the cost of the taxpayer at large or the ratepayer at large. Um, you could argue that um, these people um, were not warned, um, were not informed, um, weren't to know, couldn't have known, and um, that in a just and sane society, we help those people out who've been badly affected by so-called acts of God. And we have a history, of course, of helping um, people who have been uh, personally hurt hard during emergencies like earthquakes, like floods. And um, uh, this is the right approach. Um, secondly, you could say... Um, this is a disaster for those homeowners and all of the cost should be borne by the state, the Crown. Uh, and that um, the Crown is the one, the only one with the ability to borrow or to tax, to pay for this in any sort of way that doesn't uh, wreck a few people, but that can be afforded by um, people at large. So there was a genuine suggestion, and in, in, in the Cabinet considered, a flood levy in which there would be a one-off, very broad uh, tax on all taxpayers to, in effect, pay for this event. Now, Treasury has estimated that the capital cost of um, infrastructure uh, could be anything over $10 billion. Uh, we know from the 700 homes that are going to be bought back that that's a cost of about a billion dollars. But again, we don't know the share. And um, the, the government has decided not to do a levy at this point. So it's going to have to come from spending that would have gone into other things uh, or some, some extra borrowing. And there is a bit of that. So um, the question is, so how should we approach this in future? Should we make it a state thing and just have some sort of permanent levy? 
or should we make all of the cost uh, land on the uh, heads of the landowners, many of whom are in a better position to uh, deal with this than others, in that um, if you own land in New Zealand, you at least from the value of the land, you're very rich. Although you could flip that on its head and say they're only rich because of the value of the land, and if the land is worth nothing, they're suddenly poor again. So you need to help them. Uh, so, you know, this is a tough, tough thing. Uh, meanwhile, all the while, we're pumping out climate emissions from uh, transport, from housing, from factories, from farms. And uh, we're doing it more slowly than we've promised that we would do it to the international community, which means we're actually building up some very large financial liabilities, at least. And as the pace of climate change picks up, the costs are growing fast. And it's clear that the costs in future will be much larger. And the question is, uh, how do we prepare for it? How do we invest now to reduce the future damage? So if you could invest in a couple of ways, you could invest in a lot of uh, mitigation. So increase the size of the stock banks and um, um, build new floodways and uh, put houses on stilts and whatever it is you, you think will help um, reduce the costs in the long run. And of course, uh, investing to reduce our emissions. So, you know, uh, making it uh, a lot easier and safer for people to cycle and walk to and from work, home, school, and the likes. Um, making uh, sacrifices, if you like. Um, for example, uh, turning one lane of a road into a cycle lane by um, screwing in bollards so that it's safe or uh, completely um, re-engineering a road to include very separated cycleways with lots of nice curbs and various things, and um, making it more difficult for people with cars to park. And one of the most obvious um, areas where this is a conflict and an opportunity is all the car parks on the sides of roads, where people often park for free, and uh, uh, But if you remove those car parks and made it into a cycleway that was protected with bollards, then um, wouldn't cost so much. You wouldn't have to build an entire new space for a cycleway. And it would be relatively fast and cheap. Uh, and we have some examples of that. But of course, there's a cost in that the people who had expected and felt entitled to that car park and needed it for their lifestyle, you know, if you're living in the suburbs and you've got a job in the town and you can rely on this car park, then you can expect to use a car and park it in the driveway at home when you get there and then drive into work and park there uh, or drive to the shop and use the shop and um, take the bags out of the shop and put them in the boot of the car that's parked right outside the shop, those sorts of things. And there are, of course, a lot of shopkeepers and there are a lot of um, people with businesses who depend on people using their cars to come to their businesses. That's why the business is located there rather than the centre of town. Or, uh, um, uh, you know, their, their entire lives, where they live, how they live, what type of house they live in, where their business is, how big it is, how accessible it is. Um, whether or not uh, are they they're able to deliver uh, when others are able to come and drive up to the store and take the things away in the back of the car or the double cab ute. 
uh, you know, all of those things depend on the car parks and the roads. And when you swap a, a lane or some car parks for uh, cycleways, then you um, essentially challenge the status quo. You are saying that we want you to change your lifestyle, maybe at some cost, uh, either in time or in um, business opportunities. And we want to transfer that value to other people who are going to choose to not drive and use their cycles, uh, reduce their own costs, and maybe improve their health. But that is a that is a societal choice where you're saying that to engineer a fair transition, uh, we're going to um, make it more costly to drive a car, park a car, more difficult to drive a car, park a car, uh, more expensive to live in the sub outer suburbs rather than in town or have a business that might be in town or in the outer suburbs either way and certainly a long way away from where your customers are. So that's it. those are societal choices in which some people win and some people lose. Uh, ultimately, you could argue that um, if you do it well, everyone's a winner because you don't have these costs in the future coming through. These are the sorts of questions we thought we wouldn't have to deal with for a while. <laughs> and we thought we'd have some time because the idea of climate change is it's a very slow process that, you know, it takes decades and we'll have time to do this and we'll organise it and uh, we'll, we'll very deliberately and um, collaboratively uh, have a debate and a compromise and find a way through so that we have a just transition. Um, but that's not happening because climate change is happening faster now than our politics can work. And I wanted to give you two very immediate examples. Now, you've, you've heard about the government's announcement about cost sharing yesterday, although it didn't actually include what the cost would be or exactly who would be sharing what, just that they, this was an aspirational statement. <laughs> essentially saying ah, we don't either we don't have enough information or we've looked at the information and it hurts and we'd rather put this decision off and this is one of the problems in this um, overall climate change fair transition conundrum is who pays and when and uh, how do you avoid uh, being the one that has to pay now and the inevitable result often is just no decision and you, you by default, accidentally on purpose, shove the decision out into the future to be borne by other leaders and other voters, some of whom might not even be born yet. So that's the, um, the cyclone uh, decisions and there'll be many more of those to come and I'll be trying to keep up with who shares and how we pay and all of that. But there's a couple of other things I wanted to point to in today's email newsletter and in the podcast, which you might not have heard of um, unless you happen to be in a couple of cases, a couple of uh, places and very engaged in your communities. And uh, uh, also, um, these are examples that are going to play out again and again and again in lots of different places and lots of different ways in every city and town in this country for decades to come. And it's a it's a bit of a um, a sneak peek into the future of what our political economy will look like and the sorts of conflicts that we'll have to deal with and how we're dealing with them at the moment. Right, let's start with a particular road in Christchurch called Park Terrace. 
Now, Christchurch is a lovely place for cycling. It's flat as. Whenever I go there, I'm always amazed at how flat it is. And I initially think, yeah, I'd love to get around here on a bike. It'd be really fun and easy. And often it's quite sunny, uh, if a little crisp. Although, try it in summer, it's pretty warm. So um, there's been a lot of talk about uh, changing some of these big, wide avenue-type roads around Christchurch and um, having a lot more cycle lanes that are safe. So there's there's some sort of separation between the cyclists and the drivers. And uh, if you're doing this in an accelerated way and you really want to make a difference quickly, then the way to do it is not so much to, you know, have a big, long consultation process and do a whole bunch of engineering, you know, widening roads so that you can have a special uh, allocated uh, space for a brand new cycleway which doesn't take away any of the road space from the cars. Often those things cost tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of, of millions of dollars and they take decades. Or you can do um, what you could call as a pop-up cycle lane in which you literally one day um, put down some orange cones, get some bollards, take a, a drill with you and essentially drill these hard plastic bollards into the road and create a cycleway, literally in a weekend. And uh, over time, uh, a lot of uh, advocates of cycleways and walkways have realised that um, the fastest way to do this, and it's the fa fastest way is always the best way, A, because it's cheaper, and B, because it's faster, it means that you reduce your emissions faster, is to do these, you know, um, I wouldn't call them guerrilla attacks, but certainly fast fast transitions. And in Christchurch, uh, this was uh, done in on Park Terrace. Now, there was some consultation with councils, and there's a debate about, you know, whether people knew this was actually, actually going to happen in this way. But um, clearly, a whole bunch of people didn't realise it was coming. And then one weekend, bang, up go the bollards and in goes the cycleway. And a lot of people in uh, Christchurch, particularly after the election last year, are opposed to more cycleways taking space off roads for car drivers. It's very quickly becoming a culture war issue where um, people who are older and who are own homes in the suburbs and double cab utes are saying this is an, an anti-car policy. This is a woke program of urban intensification, all um, designed to make life difficult for me and unnecessary and um, undemocratic. And we've seen all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories about how it's some sort of um, uh, UN master plan to um, uh, deindustrialize and 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 um, try to completely change everyone's lifestyles. Uh, it's a global plot. And we've heard, and I'll put a link in the email today to, <laughs> to a particular case of one council who had to argue back at these um, rabbit holers uh, and, and say, no, it's not a global plot to, you know, pry your double cab ute out of your cold, dead hands. Uh, so... Uh, there's, that's the political background here. Well, so a few of the councillors, the centre-right councillors and the Christchurch Council, have staged a, um, uh, a fight back to this um, uh, guerrilla cycleway. 
and uh, Phil Major, who's the mayor, the new mayor in Christchurch, and a couple of councillors have um, yesterday managed to arrange a new vote to effectively reverse this, to rip out the bollards and turn it back into a full lane for traffic. And uh, there's going to be a survey of all road users, including car drivers, who are going to say whether they like the new temporary um, cycleway or not. And uh, we'll see whether or not and there's going to be a vote in council next week on whether or not to rip out the bollards. Um, it's one of these cases of uh, where uh, the status quo fights back against moves to um, have active active transport modes, mode shift, you'd call it, and um, a very interesting one. The second one is in Wellington. So those who've lived in Wellington will know about Thorndon Quay. It's a, a relatively wide road, a quite uh, heavily used commuter route for people from Kandala, Johnsonville uh, and the likes, and also a few people who are coming off the motorway from the Hutt Valley and into the uh, northern end of the main Wellington city. And it's a pretty busy road, particularly at rush hours. It's uh, four lanes wide at least, and with currently lots of angled parking for a whole bunch of shops, furniture stores, cafes, some light industrial um, cycle shops. Uh, it's it's quite a busy shopping area, and a lot of people just go there and park and walk in and pick up their couch and put it in the boot or whatever it is they do and drive away. And uh, two years ago now, the Wellington City Council voted uh, a majority to um, convert a whole bunch of these angled parks on either side of Thorndon Quay into a cycleway and replace them with parallel parks. In effect, it removed 145 car parks, or was going to remove 145 car parks from these areas right next to all of these shops on Thorndon Quay to make the um, cycle lane safer. So for all those people from Kandala and Johnsonville and the hut who want to cycle into the city, they can do it without getting knocked off their bikes by people parking all over the place or uh, driving. And um, almost immediately there was a protest from the local uh, the local shopkeepers who said taking away the 144 parks would wreck their businesses and wasn't necessary. And so they protested and they took the council to court, initially to the <laughs> high court. And while this was happening, the road was not being uh, fixed or the cycle lane was not being put in. And um, the high court eventually ruled against uh, the group of shop owners. They're called the, Th the Thorndon Collective, Thorndon Key Collective. And uh, that we thought was that. But no, the Thorndon Key Collective obviously have banded together and have some money for lawyers because yesterday they announced they were going to take this decision to put a cycle way in from the <laughs> the High Court, which had rejected their um, challenge, to the Appeals Court. So this is the Appeals Court of Aotearoa, New Zealand. This is where big matters uh, are often uh, put in front of some of our most uh, experienced and expensive judges. So we're talking appeals against murder convictions, you know, uh, major challenges to 
uh, legislation, um, huge projects uh, in front of environment courts, those sorts of things. But no, this is a cycleway and 144 car parks. And we're now two years on from the decision to put in the cycleway, no cycleway, uh, car park's still there. And the status quo is fighting hard. In fact, that was their argument and is going to be their legal argument to the appeals court, which is that the council didn't consider all the options when it looked at this. And one of the options was the status quo. So uh, it's worth keeping an eye on that one. I'll try to try to keep up with it. The point of mentioning these cycle lane examples in Christchurch and in Wellington is to give you a sense of the fight that is going on. It's a trench warfare type fight between uh, climate change activists, active transport activists, and the status quo of those people who live in suburbs, have businesses in and around um, transit routes, and are opposed to both giving up uh, roadways and parks to cyclists and walkers, and opposed to changing not just their lifestyles, but the way that their businesses operate. Uh, They would like to um, have everything, which often means spending a lot of taxpayers' money on huge amounts of concrete and steel to um, add or widen these uh, spaces to include brand new cycle lanes, walkways, or even more more car space. And to give you a sense of how much it costs, well, today we've got news uh, from the Ōtaki to Levin Expressway. And if you're from this part of the country, well, when I say this part of the country, I'm talking about uh, Wellington, Horofenua. Uh, there's been an extension of the Wellington motorways through Transmission Gully, and through Paraparomu, and and is now on its way up to uh, Levin to try to get rid of the big holiday traffic jams that often happen uh, in and around there when the motorway goes from four lanes down to one. So the plan was to build this extension of the motorway called the Otaki to uh, uh, Levin uh, Expressway. And originally it was going to cost about uh, less than a billion dollars. It's escalated since then to one point, uh, $1.6 billion dollars. And uh, Thomas Coughlin at the Herald reports this morning that that cost has escalated to $1.9 billion, potentially, maybe even $2 billion, because it's now more expensive to buy the land and to uh, install the concrete and the steel. And um, so we're looking at a cost per kilometre for this motorway of $69 million dollars. Now, you may think that's outrageously high and too expensive for a 22-kilometer long motorway. And it is quite a lot, but when you look at some of the other projects that we do at the moment, for example, the Waterview Tunnel and uh, Expressway that was opened in 2017. This is the one that sort of makes the Auckland motorway system a proper circuit and means you can basically blast your way from Mangere Airport into the CBD on a full motorway, which you didn't used to be able to do. Uh, that um, that cost uh, a significant amount per kilometre, uh, uh, tens of millions of dollars. And when you look at the city rail link, so this is the three and a half kilometre underground big tunnel for the loop, the railway loop that's going to 
make it much easier to use a train to get in and out of central Auckland and around of central Auckland. Uh, massive project, very disruptive, um, very expensive. Um, we're talking uh, uh, there about $1.4 billion per kilometre. So, gee, $69 million sounds cheap at the price. Obviously, completely different situations. We're talking about comparing a motorway with a with an underground railway. But uh, the point I'm trying to make here is that the time frames involved and the costs involved in doing all this concrete and steel to try to improve our transport situation, and sometimes these things are argued as um, in designed to reduce emissions. That's one of the reasons people have given for various rail projects and to make things safer, and that's often a, a, a reason for doing motorways. Um, we're talking billions and billions and billions of dollars, but more importantly, decades of time when we need to be reducing emissions right now. Uh, I think that one of the debates we're going to be having in years to come is going to include the option of not investing all this money in new concrete and steel, but doing much faster conversions of roadways into cycleways and walkways, doing the sort of screw-in-the-bollards-on-a-weekend type arrangements, which are much cheaper and faster, but of course require the permission of those who are giving up space for their double-cab utes and parks, and uh, it also requires, it's a it's a story about political uh, will and uh, and debates, which we're not having. Because at the moment, the solution is to not have the debate, to not challenge the status quo, and to invest large amounts of some money, usually taxpayer-funded money, in huge amounts of infrastructure, which takes decades to build and won't actually solve the issue of reducing emissions. And also adds a lot of cost. So um, one of the things I'll be arguing for uh, in various emails and podcasts to come is the need for much faster conversion of roads directly and simply into cycleways at least and often road uh, walkways as well. And the deal, if you like, for those people who um, don't like cycleways and walkways and would much prefer custom-built motorways or at a pinch a railway for someone else to pay for and use, uh, is to say uh, you don't have to pay for the motorway and the railway anymore, which might mean big debts and big taxes and big rates. But the deal is you have to agree to the cycleway and you have to um, give up some of your car parks and change the way that you do things where you live, maybe, or how you get around. Um, and that will be an interesting discussion. I hope one that gets taken up at some point. I'm Bernard Hickey. Uh, that was my podcast for second June the 2nd, a Friday. And for regular um, paying subscribers, we look forward to having a chat with you in the Ask Me Anything at midday. And also in uh, come along and have a chat or have a watch of, of The Hoon at 5 o'clock, our weekly webinar, which we put out as a podcast on Saturday morning. Ka kite anō.